Welcome to the Weekly Benefit Roast, featuring Benefit Indemnity Corporation's president, Roger Bain. Roger has devoted more than 30 years to understanding and developing innovative health benefits plans for large groups and groups as small as five employees. Our moderator is Bob Graham. Take it away, Bob. Hey, welcome to the February 25th version of the Benefit Roast. I'm Bob Graham, your moderator, and I've got a marvelous cup of coffee with me today. I've got a French roast that is to die for. And Roger, what are you drinking today in our coffee? <laughs> Sorry, Bob, just a little technical issue there. You, you, you with me? Which, which, what kind of coffee are you drinking today? Do share. I drink the Benefit Roast. The benefit roast. See, he's he. There you go. I, I I I gave you that one, and you took it so easily. So, if you're new to this, welcome. This is our weekly discussion over coffee, as you can see the coffee cup, and we talk about all things health benefits. And this week, we're going to talk about provider networks, which is a contentious topic. And we'd love to hear from you if you have questions, comments concerns. If you want to share a story, we are open to all those things. We look forward to learning from you as well as sharing with you. And in a second, Roger Bain, who I've just talked to briefly, is going to get on. And let me um, do some housekeeping first. Uh, You can chat with us by using the chat box that you see. You can type a question or comment. Or you can ask that we unmute you and you can actually join the discussion with your voice. We hope to get as many of you as we can in the hour we have allotted, but there's no guarantee. Last week we had lots of questions and the time flew by and we don't want to waste anyone's time. So we're going to move as quickly as possible. So with that, let me move to introducing Roger Bain, who is a small business owner like many of you. And he's been creating innovative health benefit solutions for many years. Roger is the president of Benefit Indemnity Corporation, which is a national health benefits provider located right here in lovely and windy Baltimore today. And Roger's one of those people that doesn't just uh, think about health benefits for a couple hours a day. He thinks about them day and night. I'm amazed at how many times I see him on Monday morning and he will tell me something that he thought about with health benefits over the weekend or in the middle of the day, we'll have brought up something in the morning and by afternoon, he's got some insight on it. So you're getting really a great person to talk to about these things. And we're going to start today with Roger with just a couple of slides talking about provider networks and whether they're effective or not. And Roger, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm leaning towards the not side of the equation myself. So maybe you can convince me otherwise. Go ahead. <laughs> well, Bob, we'll, we'll have a a little bit of good luck to try and convince you otherwise, because I think I'm of the same school of thought that we have a lot of challenges in what's going on in reimbursement methodologies between preferred provider organizations and the new narrow networks and a number of other things. And and to talk about that, I want to talk a little bit about the history of that benefit reimbursement for a minute, because for years, back, you know, my years number just over 32 years in this business now. And in the old days, 
it was all about usual, customary, and reasonable rates. So we would just look at databases of what doctors in the area are charging for a certain procedure, and we'd pay some percentile of that number and just go, go to business that way. But the problem was the customer's feelings in that regard is that those were arbitrary. Even though they were done with a lot of data searching and a lot of grilling of numbers in back offices of insurance companies, because customers aren't part and parcel to that discussion, it appears arbitrary to them. So that whenever their doctor charges one number and the insurance company wants to pay less, it's the big bad insurance company that's the problem, even when their physician might be charging twice as much as a physician just down the block. So it really doesn't matter. It's always the insurance company is the bad guys because there's a lacking of transparency and nobody knows where those fees came from. Roger, can I jump in? We've got a question from Lisa, which is, how does anyone know what a doctor or hospital charges anyway? And I think that's relevant to what you're talking about now. Can you work that into your uh, comments, please? Well, yeah, I think it is. Uh, the, the real challenge, Lisa, with, with this is the, the bullet that's on the screen now is lacking of transparency. Nobody really knows. It is really hard to establish that. Years ago, Great West commanded or, or commissioned a study by the RAND Corporation that went out to look at all Americans, and, and they started surveying Americans, and the American citizen could pick the price of a new Honda Civic within $300, but were off by over 50% on a three-day hospital stay. So Americans just don't know what our health care costs. We have no idea. And oftentimes, when we ask our physicians what a procedure will cost, they say, I don't know. Everybody pays me differently. And so you've got different hospitals, different negotiations, different providers or healthcare payers, plan payers, and everybody's all off all over the map. And we'll illustrate a little bit of that today as we go forward. But, but that's but Roger, can, I can I jump in and just say, doesn't this sound a lot like uh, airlines where the price I get for a flight today is different than the price I get tomorrow? And if I sit in the front, it's different. And if I sit in the back and if I go through travelocity or one of those services, it's a different rate. This Certainly, insurance isn't the only area or provider networks aren't the only area where we see this lack of transparency. Well, I agree that in, in one respect, it feels like the airlines and then it's all over the place. The problem is it's even more complex than that. Um, for example, at least with an airline, you know what your ticket costs when you buy it. In the medical profession, that same survey indicated that there was a very high percentage of Ameri Americans that did not know what their healthcare expenses would be until after they got the bill or the adjustment from their insurance company, and another high percentage that never knew the final number of what their healthcare expenses were. Certainly different than an airline bill. You know what you're paying because you're paying it. Problem is with a third-party payer system, and you have an insurance pay company paying a portion of the bill. You know what your portion is. You don't know the full picture unless you're studying all of the documents that come in. And even then, it's after the fact. It's too late to do anything about it. So that's a big part of this. That causes code creep where doctors start charging more because a physician really, really would hate to be charging less than what the insurance company is willing to reimburse him 
for a medical claim. So all of a sudden they find out that they're getting 100% reimbursement on whatever they bill the insurance company and they figure, well, something must be wrong. I better charge a little bit more and let them knock me down to their maximum fee. And that causes that code creep, which is an artificial form of medical inflation. And of course, that forces utilization, where some physicians will actually do more procedures, et cetera, to generate more revenue. So enters after all this history, and again, that's a really short, condensed version for our coffee chat today. Uh, but then we enter into the preferred provider organization arena that came out in the late 80s, early 90s in response to HMO market development and Blue Cross organizations and all of those things that start to decide a means and a method to reimburse providers. So in a PPO, we're talking about getting a discount from that retail charge. So we go out and talk to hospitals, doctors, labs, everyone, and we start negotiating some discounts. Well, in hospitals, for example, the billable charges across this country average between 300% and 1,100% of what Medicare pays them. Now, that sounds outrageous, right? We're talking about a very wide span of charges. Part of that is based on cost of living. Part of that is based on the nature of the hospital, whether it's a teaching hospital or a research hospital or what their costs are, and even sometimes of how much uncompensated care they deliver based on the neighborhood that they're in. So when you look at these wide ranges, the point isn't the 300 to the 1100 necessarily, although that's a big component to the lack of predictability. But what's also so important is why would it be 300% of Medicare? That's an astronomical charge. Medicare pays about 90% of the costs. So we all admit that Medicare reimbursement is insufficient to pay hospitals and providers for their care. So that's the government taking advantage and wielding their power and saying, we're going to pay less. And then everybody else in the private sector has to make up for that by paying more than 100% of Medicare. But Roger, I, I have a question. Can I jump in with this point? I'm sorry to cut you off. Uh, Joe's asking a really important question, which is why do we let Medicare set the rates? Well, that's a very good question. And the reason we allow Medicare set the rates is because years ago, the American Medical Association and the Harvard School of Medicine got together and created the only system of standardized reimbursement in the country. And that's called the resource-based relative value schedules that are established by Health and Human Services, and now, so that's what we call them now, that drives Medicare reimbursement levels. So these fees, this relative-based, uh, resource-based relative value schedule, actually studies cost of living in an area, the resources of the hospital, again, research, teaching, et cetera, and dis establishes a reimbursement level for those providers based on their local cost of living, et cetera. And so this is the closest thing we have to a standard that would liken to the old book at the auto mechanic shop, where if you walk in with your 1968 Impala, they flip the pages till they get the 68 Impala. They find that there's an alternator. If you need your alternator replaced, it's a half hour of labor. Well, this is how the Medicare reimbursement structure could work and does work in general. So what it means is we're establishing a standard platform for reimbursing providers. So the reason we use that as the standard is because it's the only standard we have. No one else established one. And in the absence of leadership, we have a void right? So all we can do then is take that standard that is imperfect and adjust it. 
and reimburse medical expenses based on a percentage or an upcharge of that. Let's pay 110%. Let's pay 140% of Medicare or whatever is the appropriate amount to, to assure that a hospital or a medical provider gets an appropriate reimbursement with a fair and reasonable profit on top of their costs. That's really the goal and that's what we need to achieve. But 300 to 1100% is not that, I guarantee it. That is way out of the norm of what we should be reimbursing. And so that's why when we look at this, we introduce PPOs. If we're looking at an average charge of 331% across the country, and you take a PPO discount that can range anywhere from 2% to 70%, then we're looking at something now that says, okay, let's look at a normal discount, 30 to 60%. You take a wide range still of less than predictable hospital charges, and you apply a discount to those, it's like shopping at the most expensive retail outlet, getting a discount, and having a retail net, a great sales price that is still twice what you might get at a discount store. So, and I'm not suggesting that we want to go to a discount hospital and get lower quality care. I'm talking about delivering quality and price in a way that everybody can understand because we gain some transparency. So here's an illustration for that, and this is kind of what's really important. You'll notice this chart from an article that we, we pulled from the Huffington Post. When we're looking at from a health and human services map, and we look at American hospitals and how they're charging in this one geographic area from New York, Bayon Hospital Center in New Jersey, the average amount charged per patient was $99,690 compared to an average of only $7,000 per for patients at Lincoln Medical and Mental Health Center in the Bronx for the same treatment of treating chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. That is such a radical difference, it is almost incomprehensible to us, right? 7,000 to 99,000. And in this, we have no quality matrix or relativity whatsoever. So we don't know, we can't even begin to imagine that that $99,000 hospital is 12 times better at performing these services and getting 12 times better the outcome, unless we have studies to verify that. And unfortunately, we're typically void of that. So when you look at that map on your screen and you can see the wide range of fees to hospitals that are sometimes just a mile or two away. And as you get closer and closer and you look at this population, you just can't imagine why we could have such a radical difference. Roger, I'm having a real problem reading those numbers on that. Can you give us some of those numbers just uh, as best you can? So if we can't see this, we can at least understand what you're talking about. I think it's important to try to get out. I can. In the green, you have... So that looks to me like it's New York, correct? Right. And you have $7,044 at the... That's the Lincoln Medical and Mental Health Center in the Bronx. Okay. And in the red highlighted is $99,690 from Bayonne Hospital Center in New Jersey. Now, okay. just below that red is a $21,000 number. Below that, a $17,000 number. To the so right in New Jersey, those three, right? Right. To the right of that, right across the river, is a, an $18,000, $19,000 number. Right below the green number is an $8,000 number and then a $20,000 number. So they're just all over the map. The upper right-hand corner of your screen is a 13.5. Uh, 
the lowest number on the corner, lower left corner is 16,800. So the variance in these is just absurd to imagine how in the world we have any resemblance of reality to this pricing. So that, in essence, is our challenge. Does that help, Bob? Yes, it does. Thank you. And we're seeing, it looks like there's a variance from state to state. Could that explain some of this, Roger? Just different states have different rules, different regulations, different price points? There is some variance state to state by cost of living in the area and things of that nature. Occasionally, there might be a different hospital regulation or structure. Maryland, for example, is a wide outlier because Maryland has a very specific hospital regulation and a waiver that they got from Medicare way back 30 plus years ago. And that waiver of Medicare, Maryland is the only state where Medicare pays the hospital the same amount that Blue Cross or Cigna or a commercial insurance carrier would or anybody else would. It's basically an all-payer state. Everybody pays the hospital the same reimbursement level. No discounting, no PPO needed, et cetera. And that's because the state has established a means by which to control and regulate those costs and divvy them up based on their method. So that scenario is, to some extent, ideal but still isn't creating enough effect. And we'll get into why in a few minutes, but this chart just kind of shows you if you compare New Jersey to Maryland, New Jersey, the 10 highest hospitals in New Jersey, average billing of 861.5% of Medicare. Um, The average overall in the whole state is still 583% of Medicare. North Carolina, which is a lower income rural area, 493%. Not all of North Carolina is considered rural, but you get my drift. And 316% on average overall. So when you look at those things, you got to go back in and say, okay, so we're going to discount this with the PPO. If we're looking at 30 to 60% discounts, somewhere in that range, uh, you take a state that has a 480% of Medicare, you discount it by 50%, and it still yields a reimbursement of paying almost two and a half times the reimbursement that Medicare would pay. And I would submit to you that I don't think that's appropriate. I don't think that's the right number. I don't think that's the fair number. And that is, in essence, our challenge with PPOs today. How do we get a high-performance PPO to actually create the appropriate direction and the steerage to the hospital that's best for the condition and with the right price? Again, actual hospital costs are typically just above Medicare. Medicare is reimbursing about 90%. This gives you a little bit of an idea. In one particular area, a a lower joint replacement, the red is the Medicare payment and the blue is the typical hospital charge. And you see just how radical that charge is and how- Roger, I'm not seeing you changing your slides. Did you change slides? I don't see a blue. No, I, I thought they were there. Let me take a look and see. What do you have on your screen, Bob? Now I do. There you go. Thank you. And if you could describe these for the people who are not going to be able to see that, that would be great. Right. Okay. So what we have here on the second slide of the similar nature with heart failure with a major complication, Alaska Native Medical Center. Again, the red is the Medicare payment. The blue is what the hospital charges. The Alaska Regional Hospital, look at how much different the charge is. So when you talk about $45,000. Yeah. Compared to about 14000 it looks like. That's correct. 
And then if you look at Bartlett Regional, you're looking at 12,000 compared to 22,000. If you look at Central Peninsula General Hospital, you're looking at 10,000 versus 31,000. I mean, the, the disparity is just so unexplainable and ridiculous that it is very difficult for us to understand how it makes any sense other than let's throw it up there and see what we can get. And so when we look at that, it's a challenge. Now, this spreadsheet is a really important piece of the exercise because we all know that if Medicare and Medicaid are going to pay just under 90% of the cost of care, the hospitals and doctors have to make up for it somewhere, right? And if some portion of the population doesn't pay at all, then there's no reimbursement for that. So what I did is took a number of about $10 million worth of services. And then to that $10 million worth of services, meaning it cost the hospital $10 million, and we put on there a 15% profit margin, which is slightly above the typical hospital profit margin. The average profit margin around this country for hospitals, I'm told, is about 12%. So now I'm saying let's go 15%. And that means on $10 million worth of costs of medical care, we need to get $11 million $11.5 million in revenue in order to generate a fair and reasonable profit for the hospital. If the patient volume is 37% in Medicare and Medicaid, that means for that $3.7 million in care, we're only going to get $3.3 million in reimbursement from Medicare. So we have a shortfall. And then if we have 5% uncompensated care, which is about the average, typical average for the United States and what we're running in care that just doesn't get paid. This would be people who do not have money, do not have insurance, and are required by law to be serviced, correct? That's correct. They have, okay. they have no coverage or no assets, and they were presented to the emergency room with something that just had to be treated. And so that 5% of the population, that's another half a million dollars worth of cost with no reimbursement. So the number that's fixed is the $8.2 million in the reimbursement column at the bottom that we have to get from everybody else. So if 58% of the population needs to generate $8.2 million worth of care of, of revenue on $5.8 million worth of care, that means a reasonable reimbursement level in that scenario is 1.415 or 142% of Medicare not 250%, 300%, or 1,100% of Medicare. So, so that, let me see if I can put this in English, Roger, really quickly. That means that Medicare, Medicaid, and uncompensated care is not paying enough of their fair share. And therefore, people who have private insurance are forced to pay the difference. That is correct. That's what we call cost shifting in America. Okay. We had a... Um, there is a healthcare economist named Uwe Reinhardt that described it as the American healthcare system is working on a hydraulic system. Every time you push down on a column like Medicare or Medicaid reimbursement, the other column in that chart would go up higher. And so every time we squeeze on hospital reimbursement or government reimbursement, and we cost shift that way, we're shifting more costs to the retail private pay patients. And that's why we see this disparity in how much has to be paid. Makes sense, but it's very frustrating. Well, it's outrageously frustrating, and I understand that. And that's why we're looking at 
this new methodology called reference-based pricing. And there's a few different models for that. But if we look at a particular area, in this case, these were zip codes in and around Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where the hospital billing rates were around 525% of Medicare, the typical discounts in those regions were 56%, which means your PPO reimbursement would be 231% of Medicare. However, one model of reference-based pricing said we're going to pay the hospital either 100, the greater of 120% of Medicare or cost plus 12%. So that means we're going to look at the hospital actual costs. And what most people don't understand or don't realize in this country that every hospital that ever, pay, that ever provides patient care for Medicare patients and gets reimbursed by Medicare must disclose to the HH, Department of HHS their actual cost for delivering care for all of the services in that hospital every year by sworn affidavit. So we know it's public information what the hospital's actual cost is. So we know how to pay them a reasonable profit by looking at that cost, comparing it to Medicare, and we either pay 120% of Medicare or cost plus 12% profit, which is a reasonable approach. And you'll see how in one of those two zip codes in that area, we've got a 72% savings. In another zip code, it's a 14% savings. So in that particular other area, maybe we have a, a teaching hospital or a research hospital that has a higher reimbursement uh, model. And so there's just different structures in how that works, but difficult to explain all of the variances, but certainly more predictable in knowing what we're paying is going to be well below that 525. So Roger, for the people who checked out at this point, because it became number soup and they didn't have enough coffee, what you're basically saying is that the reference-based models are much more effective at putting call, uh, encouraging reimbursement at a rate that's more consistent with the actual cost of the service provided. Is that's that a correct. good summary? Yeah, that's probably that, that's probably the best way we can say it is what we're trying to do is attack costs with a realistic approach as to what they actually are and a reasonable profit and make payment to providers at that level. Instead of the arbitrary retail pricing of let's mark everything all up and then give discounts here and there. Okay. And Roger, I've got a couple of questions. My guess is people are asking questions to avoid you going to another slide or another description of all these numbers. And to those people who have sent us questions, thank you so much because I was it was bogging me down a little bit too. Mac asked this question, Roger. What happens if a medical professional refuses to provide care at this, quote, reference-based price? Well, that's a really good question because what that means is we have to find out why. Why is that physician refusing a reimbursement level that justifies cost plus profit, but maybe not enough profit for that physician? Is he that good? Does he have some extraordinary cost? Is there some other quality measure that he's defending his basis on? Or should we shift and look at another doctor in the area that has some outcome studies, some quality studies, somewhere to base a reasonable reimbursement? and find that out. So sometimes it's time to look at changing healthcare providers. And other times you might find a, a certain justifiable rationale. There are centers of excellence across the country for certain types of procedures like kidney transplants or other transplants. There are centers of, of excellence for other types of conditions. 
And those are typically proven to show a much higher percentage of outcome levels. Which doctor do you want to go to? The one that's done this procedure a thousand times or the one that's done it six times? And, and what are their outcomes and what are their resemblances or their, their reflecting complications and or resulting infections in certain hospitals? All of these things are issues to be considered. So when you have a physician that simply says, no, I'm not going to work for that price, the question is, why? How do you defend that? And let's take a look. It's time now to really shop with a perspective of transparency and find out. And that's where we gain some help from patient advocacy departments and vendors that help actually do the evaluation and the quality-based outcomes from providers. Thank you, Roger. I'm sure that answers Max's question. I have another question. This one's from Ben. Are there enough providers willing to accept these fee levels, or are we running into too few? Well, that's a problem we've not seen yet, because what we're seeing typically is if you're going to pay a provider a reasonable fee, they're generally going to accept the reasonable fee. In this new model that we say that we're calling industry-wide reference-based models, there are some that call it a little bit differently, and they like to call it index models or quality-based models. The bottom line is the industry is coined a phrase of reference-based. In that scenario, the numbers are showing around 98% of the claims go through without a glitch, and only about 2% run into some form of challenge, and the vast majority of those are resolved in some pretty simple negotiations. So it's clear to me and to to most in the business, that number of 98% without a problem is actually stronger than the PPO claims. In a PPO world, you're typically running in the range of 4 to 6% of claims that get balanced billed by the doctors because they're not accepting what the PPO would provide. Okay. And Roger, I've got a question for you. I've been listening to this and I'm I'd be concerned if I were a small business owner and I had 20 or 120 or 820 employees that doing all this work, figuring out the reference-based pricing, negotiating that would just take all my time. Or is that something the carrier does or how does that all work out? Well, that's certainly something the carrier does. Um, It's done by the carrier and other vendors in your plan. And that's what's so important about it is to make sure that everybody understands and is educated as to exactly what's going on and how this works in the system. I'm not beginning to tell you that this is as easy as blindly stepping into an HMO and taking whatever premium they charge and letting everybody pay the bills. But it's certainly a more cost-effective way to deliver quality health care at the appropriate pricing. Getting there is not always easy, but this is the next step in the industry from the evolution of health maintenance organizations and preferred provider organizations and then narrowed networks and now re-expanding those networks and saying, we're going to pay any quality doctor for the delivery of this care, but we're going to pay them at a reasonable price if they're willing to accept it. And if we're not, we'll find their neighbor that's just as qualified, just as capable, and delivers the same quality, and who will accept that price. And so we're kind of getting more toward that free enterprise competition that helps drive a, a lot of more competition and ultimately better value. Are we at the cutting edge of this, Roger, or has this been in place for a couple of years, or where are we in the continuum here? Because are we still shaking out the wrinkles and 
chaos or is it pretty standardized at this point? Actually, reference-based pricing, I wouldn't call it pretty standardized, but it's certainly not in its infancy. We're probably 10 years into this industry, and we're at the point where it's ready to go mainstream now. And that's kind of why we're talking about it. At Benefit Indemnity, we've been talking about it for almost two years. And only recently has it started to get more and more traction. And we're seeing that across the country. As an example, the state of North Carolina last fall put out a bulletin and an announcement that their $3 billion state employee health care plan is converting to reference-based pricing for all of North Carolina with an expected savings of $330 million dollars. 60 million of which would be right back in the hands of North Carolina employees. So we're looking at some really significant change coming down the road as large payers like that with $3 billion budgets say they've had enough of the lack of transparency and they want to pay the right price, not some arbitrary price. Okay, Eddie's opened a can of worms here. I can't even imagine them going to walk through it, but I'm going to try. Why, if this is such a good strategy for dealing with healthcare pricing, why aren't politicians talking about it? <laughs> politicians talk about what the lobbyists want them to talk about. Um, there's there's a real challenge in this field across the board on who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, what's the right thing to do to fix revolutionize or improve the quality and the delivery of healthcare in America on an affordable basis for all American citizens. I, I would submit to you that most of us either do or have or should have recognized by now that the politicians are not the answer. They don't know enough about the intricate details of the healthcare system to fathom a real solution. So we keep looking at major challenges. We've, we've seen, in my 32 years, I've seen a half a dozen major sweeping changes, some that just failed, some that actually got repealed months after being passed. And now the ex great experiment of the ACA, which has caused none of the promised competition and none of the success and none of the control and re review of costs that were promised. And so when we look at those things, we have to say, let's take some initiative and let's find out why the problem exists. And if it's simply a function of bills being arbitrary, we can correct that with transparency and standards. And that's pretty logical of an approach in how to control healthcare costs. So you think that reference-based pricing could be the solution to all these problems? Well, reference-based solution certainly is not going to be the entire solution to the healthcare crisis, but it certainly helps give us a real avenue to bring some reality into the pricing mechanics. And the experience we've been having as an industry is showing some real promise in controlling healthcare costs and providing some pretty significant savings. Okay, Roger, I have a comment from Steve who says, wow. That's a lot to take in, but I appreciate the insights. So I think that's probably the right place for us to close things today with a nice compliment like that. I want to thank Roger for his uh, information and his slides and his uh, incredible knowledge of the minutiae here that I had no idea even existed. And we will be back next Monday with another episode of The Benefit Roast.
And Roger, I don't remember what the topic is. Do you remember what next week's topic is? Offhand, Bob, I do not. I'll have to look that up and, and we'll certainly get it out to everybody. Okay. Thank you, everyone. Have a great day. Thank you. You've been listening to The Benefit Roast, a weekly discussion sponsored by Benefit Indemnity Corporation. Employers in a wide range of fields are using employer-owned health benefits plans to deliver better benefits to their employees at a lower cost. Learn more at BenefitIndemnity.co. That's BenefitIndemnity.co. See you again next week.